Well, welcome to the Entangled Kingdoms podcast, where we explore how the kingdoms of light and dark are at work in the natural and the supernatural realms. And our task together has been to untangle the kingdoms so that we can find truth amongst the deception, so that we can discern how we are to live in light of the gospel of Jesus. So I'm your host, Jeremy Wade, and I am excited to dive into today's topic. Uh, last time we began untangling the um, second temple period and the development of uh, the primary denizen of darkness himself, uh, the enemy, Satan. So in this episode, we will spend a few minutes just kind of refreshing our memory on some of the political landscape that sets up the New Testament time period. And uh, this too will kind of give us a glimpse of the religious landscape. And out of this religious landscape, I'm hopefully going to introduce you to some, uh, well, interesting Second Temple Jewish writing um, all of which kind of gives us a, a small taste of what their understanding of Satan and the worldview of our New Testament writers, which, you know, too, was much more of a, a haunted worldview. I remember our conversations about worldviews. Um, but uh, let that kind of be a uh, constant backdrop over, really, the course of this series. We need to keep those things in mind how they were influenced and what they were thinking. So just to recap, you may remember that we began this Denizens of Darkness series by untangling the serpent motif and the use of that typological description of Satan throughout Scripture. Uh, next, we discussed Hasatan, a phrase or a descriptive title that we um, kind of trace throughout the Old Testament. We saw that it, it actually applied to a lot of different figures. It could uh, at times be used to describe humans, uh, even Yahweh himself. And in Job 1 and Job 2, uh, we looked at Zechariah 3. Uh, there are, are a, uh, a spiritual being, an, an Elohim, that acts as a, a Hasatan, an accuser, an adversary of Yahweh, of Yahweh's people. But uh, something I encouraged at that time, and I still do, is while reading these Old Testament passages, where often we will see a capital S Satan, often used in English translations like the NIV, the ESV, uh, the original language uh, typically does not use these as a name like some of these English translations do. Uh, so just as something to keep in mind when reading. So instead of it transliterating the Hebrew word and turning it into a name, you know, the best way uh, the original readers and the primary way that I believe that we should read it as well is as lowercase descriptors. Why shouldn't we just feel free to kind of read backwards into these passages, knowing what we know from the New Testament? Well, um, because truthful and honest hermeneutics, I believe, forces us to approach, or should force us to approach these texts first as how the authors had originally written for the original audience, you know, how they expected it to be read and understood. Um, once we do that work of understanding what the first and primary way the author and uh, the readers understood it, then we can press forward and view these passages in light of the biblical theology that is developed later. I, you know, I believe that we do ourselves a disservice, um, again, this is just all my opinion, when we don't approach the scriptures and the text as um, candidly as possible. Uh, by translating these Old Testament passages and kind of dropping the article uh, from that phrase, ha-satan, turning that into a proper name, we are changing uh, what was written, and I believe that what the author's understanding of what they were writing, too. Um, it just seems unnecessary, in my opinion. Bible translators just need to trust that we will do the work of studying and putting these pieces together 
you know, as we see today, you know, we lose the chance to see how this doctrine of the enemy, this theology of Satan is developed over time when we, um, you know, seek to take these, uh, what, you know, some may consider shortcuts. And I'll be honest, you know, maybe that's just my pride and, um, but I don't need or want someone connecting those dots for me necessarily. Show me what's really there so I can connect those dots myself. All right, rant over. Um, so let's start today's conversation. Uh, let's look again at the political and the religious landscapes during the Second Temple period that produces some of the beliefs concerning Satan that we're going to look at today. So remember that the Second Temple period in Israel lasted from the rebuilding of the Second Temple in 516 um, B.C. until its destruction by the Romans in uh, 70 A.D. So needless to say, you know, there's a, a 600-year period where a lot of things are happening. It's very complex, and there's a lot of social dynamics and political dynamics, uh, lots of different groups kind of competing for power and influence. Uh, you may remember that Israel was ruled by different empires, including the Babylonian, the Persian empires, uh, the Hellenistic Seleucid Empire, the Roman Empire. Uh, each of these empires had a significant impact on Israel's political and cultural landscape. Uh, although the, the, the returning Jews coming out of exile were free to rebuild, uh, they were still under direct external imperial rule. And so as you might expect, the people often <laughs> prefer just to kind of rise up and revolt against this rule, which in turn uh, really just kind of further divided the Jews themselves particularly during this time of Hellenistic control and influence, uh, the Jews became very divided as we see the rise of Hellenistic Judaism that is birthed out of places like Alexandria and Antioch. Um, and these guys essentially began to uh, uh, combine Jewish culture with Greek culture. But I will say, though, that, you know, that some things were produced uh, that were very influential, that were good, like the Septuagint, uh, which is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and I would argue that this was probably a good thing because it allowed many more people to engage the scriptures, which is a plus, in my opinion. Keep in mind that life during the exile, many Jews, kids growing up, they just did not learn to read Hebrew. Um, it was also during this time of Hellenistic Seleucid rule in the second century that the Jews revolted against Antiochus after he sacked Jerusalem and the temple. Again, I think that uh, last episode, we I think it was what 168, 167 BC, and perhaps you've heard of the Maccabean Revolt, named after Judas Maccabeus, but uh, really he took over the revolt from his father who had been leading it, uh, a Hasmonean Jewish priest named Mattathias. Following that revolt, his family actually uh, continued to rule in Judea, uh, and unfortunately that still uh, led to a lot of conflict, kin strife, civil wars, uprisings such that by 63 B.C., Rome had taken over, uh, and the political leaders within Judah and Israel were really just nothing but puppets under Roman influence. Nevertheless, there were many attempts, again, to revolt against rule, uh, even against the Romans in the following years. So that's just a little bit more about the, the, the political landscape, but let's kind of turn our attention to the religious landscape of the Second Temple period. So within Israel, during all this kind of turmoil, there were several important groups that arose uh, during this time period. Uh, the ones that we're going to focus on today include the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the uh, Essenes, and the Zealots. And uh, to be honest, there's 
a little to no way to separate the political landscape from the religious one because all these groups were kind of tied both with religious and political beliefs, structures, and worldviews. It, it was all a mishmash. Um, you couldn't – you can't separate them out like water and oil. Um, but thinking about the religious landscape, we, we have to first talk about the backdrop that um, some of these are reacting to, some of these groups are reacting to, and that is that Hellenistic Judaism that I had mentioned earlier. Um, Hellenistic meaning is tied to Greece. It's tied to Greek thought. It, it originated uh, when the Jews began to be uh, conquered by Alexander the Great in the 4th century BC, and that, as that empire expanded, and it uh, continued, that influence continued until the rise, well into the rise of the Roman Empire and into the 1st century AD. And so during this time, Jewish communities all around the Mediterranean were being exposed to uh, Greek and Roman cultures. And as you might expect, there's a syncretism at play. Many Jews adopted aspects of um, their philosophy and language while still attempting, though, to maintain a, a bit of Jewish identity and religious practices. So the result of all this is a, is a fusion of Jewish and Greek ideas and practices um, which can be seen, for example, in the writings of the Hellenistic Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria and other Jewish thinkers of the time. So this emergence of Hellenistic Judaism really represented a significant transformation in Jewish history and culture as they sought to navigate, really, all these influences of the, the wider Mediterranean world um, that was being pressed upon them uh, while still, again, maintaining some sense of their unique Jewish identity and religious practices. But even Hellenistic Judaism itself was pretty diverse. Uh, but in general, they explored themes like the nature of God, the origin of the universe, the role of human beings in the world. And along with importing Greek ideas, they also sought to export to their own Jewish beliefs. In fact, many believe that Judaism could and should be uh, a more universal religion. Two, there was an emphasis on personal piety and moral character of the individual and overall less emphasis on community. And there was a, a definite uptick in the more mystical and esoteric aspects of Jewish teaching and practices as interest grew in things like angels and demons and celestial beings and gods and so on. Um, there were many, though, like the Hasidim, who were opposed however, to this kind of influence of Greek culture and thought. And they uh, saw it, uh, this is just a Jewish, another group within Judaism, uh, and they saw it all as a threat, as you might expect, to the Jewish community. And they believed in preserving Jewish culture. And so they supported revolts like, you know, that famous Maccabean revolt. So with the spread of Hellenistic Judaism and the eventual rule and influence to Rome and just the, the lackluster uh, puppet leaders within Israel, there arose these Jewish sects like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. Um, so let's start with the Pharisees. The Pharisees and their beliefs essentially formed um, the foundation and practice of rabbinical Judaism, which begins to kind of solidify after the Second Temple is destroyed. But it's birthed by the thought and the practices of the Pharisees. Now, the New Testament gospel writers mention these guys quite a bit, so you may be somewhat familiar with them. Uh, as a group, the Pharisees are distinct for being opposed to the political rulers of Israel. They focus most notably on strict adherence to the oral law, 
of ceremonial washings and traditions of the elders, um, as they believe these oral laws, especially and the traditions that were passed down, uh, came directly from Moses himself. Their theological beliefs did include supernatural elements, such as the eternal nature of the soul, the existence of angels, and uh, a belief of the resurrection of the dead in the future. In some, they sought to pursue radical lives of holiness primarily by internalizing their religious laws. Now, the Sadducees, on the other hand, did not believe in many of the supernatural elements of Judaism, such as the nature of the soul and the afterlife. Um, They believed that Yahweh dealt out punishment and reward in this life, not the next. Uh, They also rejected the idea that one had to follow the oral law, instead focused mostly on religious ritual and strict adherence to the written law, the Torah. Important to note about these guys, they were primarily made up of the Jewish elite and were associated with the temple and the priestly class, which, as you may remember from Jesus' treatment of these guys in the temple and the priests, uh, not, a, not a good thing. Uh, in response to these first two groups, we have another very important group, the Essenes. Arise. Now, the Essenes of Qumran are not mentioned uh, in the New Testament by name, but their influence is still felt, as we'll see. They operated and flourished from 2nd century B.C. into the 1st century A.D., so around, again, the time of Jesus and the disciples. Some even believe that maybe even John the Baptist had connections with the Essenes, but, you know, that can't be proven from Scripture. Essentially, these folks were a a separatist group who withdrew from mainstream Judaism, um, probably over disagreements with the temple leadership and the state of Judaism. Uh, The Essenes were known for their strict adherence to the Torah laws and communal living, uh, they practice a form of asceticism. They abstain from marriage, wealth, worldly pleasures. Um, they very much focus on spiritual pursuits of prayer and study. Uh, they would agree, though, with the Pharisees on many of the supernatural elements within the Jewish faith and preserved actually what we know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. So long story short, the Dead Sea Scrolls provide biblical studies a great deal of older manuscripts helping to prove the reliability of the Bible. So the last group I'll mention here are the Zealots. They were more of a political group as they were Jews bent on overthrowing the Roman Empire. However, they were fueled by their religious beliefs. For example, they did not tolerate pagan idols and practices within Jewish lands, and they believed that God would bring about his kingdom on earth with their help. They were active from the first century B.C. into the first century A.D., and their legacy influenced later Jewish revolts, such as the Bar Kokhba revolt from 132 to 135 AD. While the Zealots' methods were controversial, they did represent a desire among a lot of Jews to resist foreign domination and to preserve Jewish identity and values in face of uh, that imperial power. So as you can see, during the time of the Second Temple, with all of this political and religious background and intrigue, we begin to see a convergence and emergence of a religious understanding concerning of our enemy, of how the serpent in the garden becomes Satan with a capital S. And this convergence coincides as the people of Yahweh are uh, rebuilding not just their physical temples and structures within Jerusalem, but they're also seeking to rebuild and kind of figure out and wade through the national identity. What does it mean to be Yahweh's people? Um, And as the scripture is rediscovered and religious worldviews begin to clash, there are various beliefs about the Torah, the oral law, the Messiah, the angel of the Lord, Yahweh, angels, demons, the idea of the resurrection and the soul, 
uh, future judgment and apocalypse, all of these ideas and a lot more. And it all converges and clash between these various factions, these groups, uh, within a very divided and turbulent Jewish community. Um, so, I don't want you to take my word for it. I would encourage you to read for yourself some of the Second Temple Jewish literature that's out there and that's available. Most of it actually can be found online for free. Uh, you can read it online. In fact, I'll leave a link so that you can do just that if you want to. Well, for those of you who would like just kind of a brief glimpse, uh, let's take a look at some of the beliefs concerning Satan in these Second Temple writings. Okay, what do, what do we learn from them? Well, within this literature and within Jewish tradition, we see a few ideas concerning Satan begin to solidify. First, Satan as an accuser. So as we saw in our last episode, Satan's depiction in Job and Zechariah 3 kind of highlights his role as mankind's accuser. Uh, during this time, there is still a great debate over the understanding of who this spiritual being is, though mostly we do see a move from him uh, simply being a member of Yahweh's divine counsel you know, to an Elohim set directly against Yahweh and his people, leading us to, secondly, that Satan is viewed as the enemy of Yahweh and mankind. Now, in the book of Jubilees, which is a prominent Jewish text from this time period, there is uh, a primary Satan figure called Mastema, and he is portrayed as the leader of a particular group of watchers who are spiritual beings who rebel against Yahweh um, by mating with mankind, teaching them forbidden things, which, of course, leads to the flood. And just a quick side note regarding the book of Jubilees and some of these other writings, we do not include it in the canon of Scripture. And it is important for us to note its influence, though, uh, as it would have been read and known by the New Testament writers and also the early church, and again, likely influenced their thinking. In fact, we have already seen this kind of influence in both Jude and Peter's writings in the New Testament, as they pulled directly from Enoch, the Book of the Watchers, uh, specifically, which is a book of the, kind of in the same vein as Jubilees. So while Jubilees is not scripture, I would say it is important enough for us to at least read and be familiar with, though read it first and primarily with an appropriate biblical filter, um, obviously. Okay? It's not scripture. It's not canon. But as for this watcher idea, that may be a new term for you, but trust me, we'll come back to it in a, another episode. But for now, just know that, yes, there is a class of Elohim that are mentioned in our scripture, too. Uh, the watchers are mentioned in our Bibles. Uh, both those that obey God and are faithful to Him, and also those who have disobeyed. Um, they are an important fixture in the supernatural realm. And uh, so we'll discuss them at length at some point in the future. But pressing onward, what else do we see solidified during this time regarding Satan? Well, third, we see that Satan is portrayed as a tempter who lures humans into sin. Uh, this aspect is depicted in several Second Temple writings, including the Testament of Job, which describes Satan's temptation of Job's wife uh, to persuade him to curse Yahweh. Um, also in the life of Adam and Eve, which is also known as the Apocalypse of Moses, it describes how Satan, uh, portrayed as an angel, uh, tempts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden through the mouth of the serpent. Not to be left out, the Book of Jubilees actually also recounts how Satan tempts Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Uh, and in this story, as it uh, is written, Abraham is tested multiple times to sacrifice Isaac. Fourth and last for now, we find another idea arise and solidify, a very important one. 
And that's the idea uh, of Satan as the ruler of demons. In the book of Jubilees, we see that he's given a number of evil spirits really to kind of use in his work of tempting mankind. Now, these spirits and their creation will be a topic that we'll come back to when we talk about demons. In the book of Tobit, one such malevolent spirit, a demon named Asmodeus, is said to be under the power of Satan. Also in the book of Enoch, Satan is portrayed as the leader of the watchers, again there, and the the chief of the demons. And in the text uh, known as the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, there is a section that describes how Satan and his demons seek to lead people astray and turn them away from God. And one last example in the text, Testament of Solomon, uh, it describes how King Solomon used his wisdom and knowledge to control and command demons, which is actually somewhat of a recurring theme in uh, a lot of Second Temple writings. But this particular text, the Testament of Solomon, it acknowledges this idea that Satan is the ruler of demons and that he is the source, too, of their power and influence. I would say if you'd like to dive into more of these kind of Second Temple period texts, I would really recommend picking up Dr. Archie Wright's book, uh, Satan and the Problem of Evil. And I'll leave a a link to that in the notes as well. But uh, something that we just don't have time for here is he really picks up and does a great job of unpacking all the various names, too, that are employed in the text. Mastema, Melchisha, Belial, Belier, the Angel of Darkness. All of these are names and titles that are used in um, describing the chief enemy of Yahweh, who you and I are simply calling Satan here in our discussion. You know, and, and honestly, I find this idea quite fitting, the, the fact that Satan doesn't really have a name. This being is just simply referred to and referenced by what he does and, you know, these titles and these descriptors. And I think I may have mentioned the importance of naming things before. This fact that Scripture never, though, giving him a name, <laughs> in my opinion, it's kind of like Yahweh's kind of throwing some shade. He's not giving um, Satan any sort of respect by actually telling us his name. But unfortunately, that does give writers a little bit of a challenge when you know trying to talk about him. Satan is, of course, what he is called by Jesus himself. So that is the primary, and I believe, the, 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 the way that we should reference this enemy of Yahweh. So needless to say, in all of these Second Temple writings, this figure that we see of great malevolence and power, he wages war against Yahweh and his people, attempting to lead them away from faithful allegiance to their Creator and their Heavenly Father. As ruler of the demons, he is seen as the key figure in the spiritual war between good and evil, uh, the leading of the forces of rebel Elohim against Yahweh in uh, tempting mankind. So as Christianity took root within Judaism, and the New Testament authors were, of course, they were inspired by God, uh, they took the true and important teachings about the enemy and recorded them for us to know as truth in their writings. In other words, you could say that the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the New Testament authors, they were inspired to communicate to us and have written for us in our Bibles regarding what we need to know about Satan. But we have to keep in mind that they, the New Testament authors, weren't oblivious to mainstream Jewish thought. Of course, uh, they read things. They were influenced by writings and what was uh, commonly believed about these ideas. 
And so uh, we'll pick up and survey the New Testament, uh, a lot of the New Testament passages in our next episode in greater detail. But here is just a taste of the kind of influence that we begin to see within our Scripture. And they kind of fall right along the lines of where Second Temple Jewish ideas and thoughts were already at. Well, first we see Satan as tempter in passages like Matthew 4, 1 through 11, and Luke 4, 1 through 13, as we see Satan tempting Jesus himself, um, you know, parallel to the way that Jesus tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and also in that Second Temple writing, uh, the life of Adam and Eve. Secondly, we see that concept of Satan as a prosecutor or accuser. It also influenced the New Testament writers uh, and the portrayal of Satan as an accuser of God's people. Uh, we see that in the book of Revelation, for example, as Satan is described as the accuser of believers. Third, we see that the idea of Satan as the ruler of demons in passages like Matthew 12, 24 through 27, uh, Mark 3, 22 through 23. Uh, there, Jesus is accused, you may remember, of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. Uh, which is just another reference, another title for Satan. And lastly, and generally, there's this Second Temple understanding of Satan as the enemy of Yahweh and a deceiver, which John picks up in his gospel, where Satan is referred to as the father of lies, who seeks to deceive and to destroy. Uh, and of course, John picks that idea up too in Revelation. And these are just a few, and we're going to take a look at a lot more in our next episode. Um, but there are definitely some other influences as well that we see throughout the New Testament, such as the, the Jewish practice of casting out demons and the overall belief of the spiritual war that's taking place between good and evil. Now, the New Testament reflects many of these ideas and these practices, providing them their ultimate biblical context within the framework and story of Jesus Christ, who we know has come to defeat the forces of evil, to defeat Satan and redeem humanity. So yeah, guys, this is just a small glimpse of the Second Temple influence, some of the writings. Uh, there are many, many more, but my goal here isn't to you know, inundate you with a bunch of uh, information, but just kind of introduce you to how uh, our New Testament authors might have been influenced by their time, by the worldview. Um, never forget, it's important for us to understand context as we seek to study Scripture. That's just good hermeneutics. So armed with some of this information, in our next episode, we're going to do a deep dive in the New Testament and formulate a doctrine of the enemy known as Satan. The beautiful news here for us is that our Messiah, our Christ Jesus, is king over all of these things. And with his death and resurrection, he has conquered and is expanding his kingdom as we speak. And you and I get to be a part of that as we proclaim the gospel, the truth about uh, the life and death and identity of who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. Uh, we proclaim that to a lost and broken world that we, we find ourselves living in. Satan and his influence may still be around us, but he can be resisted and overcome. Amen? Amen. Well, join me next time then as we continue this journey through these entangled kingdoms. Mm -hmm.